You're recording? Let's call Lanrick. Lanrick Bennett speaking. Hi, Lanrick Bennett Jr. <laughs> How's it going, sir? How's it going? Uh, welcome to the show. <laughs> just like that. Yeah, just like that. Um, I wanted to talk to you because uh, earlier this summer, we kind of sat down and we, we talked about a list of priorities in the East End of Toronto that uh, you were concerned about. And first and foremost was, I think, the, the Danforth bike lanes. Yeah, yeah. It's been a bane of uh, the East End existence for a while now. And uh, when we sat down, uh, we didn't know if movement was coming or exactly when it was coming. But something special happened just recently with a, a pop-up. That's right. Yeah, the uh, 880 uh, cities uh, pop up uh, by Danforth and uh, Woodbine. And uh, I assume you've uh, taken it for a spin? Taken it for a spin, brought the kids. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic little gem of, of a spot and a place where people actually kind of, you know, had a, had a thought bubble to say, this could happen. We could actually do this. <laughs> and what does it mean for, for you and your family on the East End? What, is it, what does it mean even just to have that pop-up? It means that the conversation is real. It means that, that the years of kind of going back and forth, whether or not cycling is a thing, whether this, this war on cars is, is the narrative, it's safety. Absolutely. I think you, you posted something about what it meant to your daughter who had written a note to a, a local politician kind of saying how, how much it would mean to her. So my daughter and I uh, used to uh, ride to her school and uh, um, there unfortunately was a father that, uh, that got killed uh, last year at uh, Jones and uh street east and this was the same route that uh that zoe and i take uh to get to her school mm -hmm. and uh she felt that it was it was too dangerous not for her she felt it was too dangerous for her dad for me to be following her uh to school she didn't want to put me in danger uh so she she stopped uh writing and in the letter that she wrote uh her hope was that uh, protected bike lanes would be uh, would be coming to her to her ward, and uh, for her to see uh, more than just green paint uh, on the Danforth, it was uh, it was pretty overwhelming for an eleven year old. It, it really it really made her. Uh, I, I don't think those were tears of anything more than joy. Right, and yeah, this this pop up. Uh, it, it wasn't just green paint. We had planters, uh, all kinds of things. The kind of infrastructure that doesn't take a lot to make, but uh, makes a huge difference. Yeah, yeah it does. I, I mean, the 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 kind of joy that the Danforth has when it comes to uh, uh, being able to put that type of infrastructure down is just the fact that it's so wide. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a big street, and yeah. and. It, it's, it accommodates, yes, definitely car traffic, but there are businesses. We've got pedestrians on the sidewalk, but you've got this, this missing piece there where 
you have a a huge breadth of cyclists that are going east and west. Uh, the the crazy thing about that Toronto Danforth area, that little nook, is that it is the gateway to get you across the Don River. Mm-hmm. So as much as as much as the pop up was was kind of that fantastic gem, we still got to go a bit. <laughs> a bit further and and we need to have that that connection so um we're excited about what the pop-up brought we're excited about the conversations that have definitely bubbled up but we need we we need more Broadcasting from the Broom Closet at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto, Ontario, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we talk to author Jamie Michaels about a graphic novel that brings to life a dark chapter in Toronto history, and Spacing publisher Matthew Blackett and urban designer Michael Colville-Anderson talk about the state of city building across Canada and how we measure up globally. But first, after nine years with the advocacy group Cycle Toronto, Jared Kolb is stepping down as executive director. During his tenure, Toronto saw impressive, sometimes implausible victories in expanding the cycling infrastructure network. The cycle tracks on Richmond and Adelaide streets, bike lanes on Bloor, and tireless advocacy for safer streets are all accomplishments that happened under Kolb's watch, and often in the face of immense political pushback. So, after nine years championing cycling in Canada's largest city, we asked Jared what he's learned. Stand by. So, Jared, nine years, uh, almost a decade, uh, kind of spearheading the Cycle Toronto movement. Mm-hmm. So, when you arrived here in Toronto in 2009, how would you describe uh, the sort of state of cycling, especially in the downtown core? It was, in 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 some ways, entirely different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd say that there were there were more cyclists, there were more people riding in Toronto than in what I'd experienced in, say, Halifax uh, or many other Canadian cities. Uh, and yet, there was no protected bike lanes in the city of Toronto. And you know, there were. There was a bike plan that, uh, you know, had been adopted in 2001, but had really been really slowly, glacially rolled out. Uh, And, you know, it was uh, really, I think the network um, was, you know, really disjointed. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, you fast forward a decade and you think, well, what's changed? Uh, you know, what's changed in 10 years, I think, number one is that we've begun to invest in a network of protected bike lanes. You know, I've got a lot of great memories from our campaigns to bring a, you know, downtown network of protected bike lanes to Toronto, as well as building out bike lanes on Bloor and some good decisions on other streets. Um, but in other ways, you know, it's still kind of similar. You know, we've got one of the things that when we welcome friends from Montreal or Vancouver to this city, often what people will say is, holy crap, Toronto, you got the cyclists, but where's the infrastructure? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've got rates, you know, in some neighborhoods here in Toronto that are, you know, approaching Copenhagen levels. Right. Uh, Cabbage Town, you know, 34% of residents ride. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that... Um, there's there's still obviously a long way to go in terms of building out a grid of protected bike lanes. But that being said, there's some key routes that we were able to get done. Richmond Adelaide being uh, critical, I think, to the the boom that we're seeing today. Mm-hmm. For listeners who don't know, uh, the, the Richmond Adelaide uh, cycle tracks are they're one way streets that have been turned into semi separated. By semi-protected bike lanes, and uh, they've been around for a couple of years. They're very highly used. I use them to get in and out of downtown. I mentioned, uh, you know, the state of cycling in the downtown core, not to exclude the suburbs, but because the suburbs present an entirely different problem in that uh, there are areas of, of the sort of inner suburbs, we're talking uh, Etobicoke, Scarborough, North York, uh, where even getting a sidewalk is a battle in some cases. So uh, bike infrastructure there is, is sorely lacking, but there, you've made inroads there too and other advocates as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, you know, I think in in uh, South Etobicoke, certainly, you know, the new uh, Lakeshore Boulevard West cycle tracks, which connect one of the last big gaps in Toronto's waterfront trail is a, is a huge addition uh, for the city. But it's it's tragic in many ways too that that, that gap didn't get filled until uh, a woman by the name of Ruth Trainer was uh, killed while riding her bike and trying to connect back into the waterfront trail. And so, you know, I think that's that's been a real challenge in terms of uh, the overall advocacy work in the city of Toronto on cycling is that often, you know, there's some very, tra- you know, tragic things that need to happen before, uh, you know, certain key pieces of infrastructure need to be built. And, you know, I think about this as well, like, why is it that Toronto is, has, um, has it taken so long to build great infrastructure in the city of Toronto? And I think in part, it's um, the political culture of amalgamation. This is not something that Montreal or Vancouver has had to face. Uh, and so people, you know, they compare Toronto, you know, when you look at the entire uh, tr- city of Toronto, the 2.8 or 2.9 million people, and, you know, you look at the rates and it's only one or 2% of people that are riding every day. And, you know, people scoff at that and say, well, I mean, look at Montreal's numbers or look at Vancouver's numbers. Um, but if you were to just peel out downtown Toronto, which has a similar, similar population to Vancouver, uh, you'd find very surprising rates and they'd be, they're, they're virtually on, on par. Um, so I think that, uh, amalgamation though has meant real challenges in terms of how do we ensure that we get a majority vote at Toronto city council for any given bike project. And it's meant a lot of really, I think, innovative tactics and campaigns, um, that bike advocates have been a part of. Mm -hmm. And like speaking of, you know, road injury or death, as a catalyst for change. Uh, A big part of your tenure also was that uh, this sort of conversation around road safety and uh, sort of uh, quote-unquote vision zero, uh, whatever that means to uh, council at the moment, Uh, but the the idea that uh, no death, uh, no road death is acceptable. Um, 
that yeah, that became headline news during your tenure. You you guys linked up with uh, organizations like uh, Families for Safe Streets, um, the the uh, lawyers uh, like Albert Cole and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, how did that feel to to really get that conversation into you know front page news? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know I. I remember I attended um, the uh, Vision Zero Cities conference in uh, New York City uh, in, in early 2016, and I was just blown away at this conference by, you know, here we had the walking and biking advocates in town putting on a conference, uh, and they had, you know, buy-in from, you know, the, the chief of the NYPD, you know, taxi and limousine commission, all these various commissions, all heads of state basically all there presenting about what, what they're doing to achieve Vision Zero. Uh, and was really stunned. I, and, you know, the key to answering it, why was it that they got such a high level of buy-in or how did they do it, was that between each of those speeches were a um, basically a, a story from a member of Families for Safe Streets, um, which was a group of survivors, um, people that had lost loved ones to traffic violence. Um, these were parents who had lost a child or, a, you know, wives that have lost husbands or, and so on. And so I remember getting back from, from that <laughs> getting back from 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 that uh, conference uh, here in Toronto, and immediately started calling all the various biking and walking advocates here in town, and saying we have to bring uh, families for safe streets to Toronto. Mm -hmm. And after you know some very, I think, very challenging conversations with uh, Kasha Brigman Sampson and David Stark in particular, Kasha had lost her husband uh, Tom, who was killed while riding his bicycle. Uh, David, uh, who had lost his wife Erica while she was walking the dog. Um, you know, they agreed to, to act as the, the spokespeople for Friends and Families for Safe Streets, yeah. and we got going. Um, and it was in that moment that uh, the city was releasing its uh, road safety plan, which called for a 20% reduction, you know, in uh, KSIs, which, you know, in many ways, looking back at that, to refer to the senseless tragedy of um, the uh, loss of life on our streets as, you know, a KSI, um, as jargon, basically, yeah. uh, I think is, uh, is a part of the problem. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, 20% reduction over the next 10 years. You know, it's an incremental kind of plan. Uh, and, you know, Friends and Families for Safe Streets got out there and said, this is unacceptable. You know, the only goal that we can adopt here in the city of Toronto is the goal of zero. We've mm -hmm. got to eliminate the scourge of road violence um, on our streets and in our time. And so city council in their wisdom changed the goal uh, from tw a 20% reduction to zero. Um, and, you know, th the history of Vision Zero kind of s flows from there right. uh, in the city of Toronto over the last three years. So. I also want to talk about beyond, uh, you know, the physical accomplishments, uh, like you noted on Twitter, things you were proud of, Richmond, Adelaide, uh, Shaw Street, uh, uh, Bloor, uh, and uh, what is hopefully going to be Danforth in, in the near future, as well as an expansion of, of the Bloor pilot. Um, great successes, no doubt. Um, but uh, I, I wonder if you can speak to uh, what you've seen as uh, a win or a loss, depending on how you feel, uh, about uh, the culture, the mentality towards cycling in this city because uh, we're still talking about this, I think, fictitious war on a car. Uh, and we're not talking about road deaths. We're not talking about what's actually at stake. There's just some guttural reaction that we still get from certain uh, cross-sections of the population that are, it's something like, how dare you ask me to modify my way of life, even, even a little bit, even knowing what's at stake, even admitting that uh, we agree that any road injury is, is too many. 
Yeah, I, I think that the backdrop that, you know, we've learned to work within at Cycle Toronto has been that reality and people operating, you know, within the city of Toronto have a, a bias towards the status quo. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fair, a fairly human thing. You know, you, you get pretty accustomed to the way things are. And if you're, you know, a local business, you know, you're, you're pretty accustomed to the way, you know, your shop has been run for the last few years. Um, and if you're, if you're looking at a plan to, to change the street configuration, you know, and you're, you know, you're, going to have a protected bike lane running through it, you're, you're immediately thinking, okay, well, how am I going to accept deliveries? How are my customers going to get here? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting to note on, on Bloor, uh, when we were going through the process of launching the, the Bloor Street bike lane pilot, um, the great work that the, co- the, the Center for Active Transportation did um, was, you know, they, they noted that after the, all their survey work that they did, that, you know, less than 10% of people actually drive to Bloor Street to shop. Mm -hmm. But fascinatingly, 50% of merchants drive to Bloor Street to shop. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or not just to shop, but just to get there. Um, And so, you know, I think that helps to tell the tale as to a lot of merchants who, you know, they, they... Drive, they get to work by car. They think, you know, in terms of motor vehicles, they think their customers are getting there by motor vehicles. Um, so as, you know, my grandpa used to say, if it walks like a skunk and talks like a skunk, it's probably a skunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that there's a real, um, there is a lot of status quo bias that's built up here. That All that being said, um, I think it's really exciting when we look at the cycling network plan where, you know, the former head of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario in John Tory, our mm-hmm. mayor, uh, as well as um, the vast majority of council uh, voted in favor of extending the Bloor Street bike lanes to High Park and in bringing back, um, you know, for consideration, a design for Danforth basically all the way out to Dawes Road or Vic Park. Um, this is, that's a, that's a huge step forward. Um, and so I think the conversation shifted a lot uh, in Toronto. I think there's always going to be a certain segment of the population, you know, that's going to, you know, go on, go on the attack around, you know, the war on the car. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Toronto's really changed over the last decade, especially in that most people are multimodal. Uh, they get around, you know, by walking, by cycling, by taking transit, uh, you know, for longer distances by car. Um, I, I think that... We have, I think, in the language and in the the so-called culture war on this, I think, is coming to a close Mm -hmm. uh, in that uh, people um, are just more pragmatic about how they get around uh, in many ways because the options, all of them are just kind of terrible. Like it is, it's not a pleasant experience to drive during, uh, during rush hour. It's not a pleasant experience to take transit during rush hour. It's funny how the only things that are actually reliable in terms of enabling you to get to where you want to be on time are walking and cycling. Um, And the challenges are, uh, you know, how do we improve safety for pedestrians? How do we improve safety for cyclists? Um, But I do think that the the conversation overall has shifted. So for someone incoming who's going to fill your shoes, uh, what what do you say to a... Uh, a person like uh, Deputy Mayor Denzel Menon-Wong, who recently gleefully tweeted about killing the Jarvis Street bike lane once again. He he did it before and he did it again. And do you work with those people going to the going forward? Do you try to get them, you know, on board, or do you kind of uh, end run them? Yeah, you know, I I never want to give up hope. I, I think that there's. Um that cycling in particular, that pedestrian issues in particular are fundamentally nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not left, you know, they're on the left, they're not on the right. You know, mm-hmm. these are issues that affect everyone. Um, 
and and that's in some ways it's the great leveler i mean anybody can be walking across the street and get hit by a car and killed mm -hmm. um hit by a driver and killed and uh, I think that that's, that's a big piece of the story in that, you know, now we've got, um, you know, a counselor like Francis Nunziata, uh, who, uh, you know, only, only about a decade ago, you know, was voting consistently with Mayor Rob Ford, you know, to kill the Jarvis Street bike lanes, kill the pharmacy and Birchmount Street bike lanes. Now, um, you know, is really, vo really out there as a Safe Streets champion. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, in part, that's because of what I just said about how uh, road violence cuts across all classes and it hits everyone across the city and uh, it has become one of the top three issues in the city of Toronto. Mm -hmm. People want to be able to get home safe. Um, they want their kids to be able to come home from school safe. Uh, they want people to be able to arrive alive. And so I would suggest that you know whoever is working within the context of Safe Streets advocacy really has got to remember um, and to position the issue from that perspective uh, to be able to reach, um, you know, all elected officials, you know, across the partisan divide. Mm -hmm. Any other lessons and takeaways from nine years in the job? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think that um, it's... You know, I, I'm obviously a huge fan of Cycle Toronto, um, mm. but I'm also a huge fan of so many uh, of the you know nonpartisan um, grassroots organizing um, uh, organizations in town. You know, the Toronto Environmental Alliance, um, TTC Riders, Walk Toronto, so many others. Um, but I think that one thing that that really strikes me after the nine years of of working on um, through Cycle Toronto has been that you know we. I think that the um, the crisis of democracy uh, is is real, uh, and it's it's something that has struck in the Western world. It's struck all over the world, and when I think about you know antidotes um, to that crisis, um, I think of organizing as one of those things. I think that you know individuals have very little power, uh, but what's fascinating is that when you know, individuals form even very small groups. They can magnify the amount of power that they have uh, and be able to promote real change in their neighborhoods, in their communities, and in their cities. Uh, and so one of the things that is clear is that when local residents get a few dozen names on a petition, uh, they can get an, a, a meeting almost immediately with their city councilor. Mm -hmm. um, yet if they just reach out as an individual, Not often, so much. Yeah, yeah, it just kind of goes overlooked. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that uh, democracy is mostly groupish. Uh, and so to exert power and influence, um, you've got to organize. Uh, so that is, for me, probably the biggest takeaway, I'd say, from Cycle Toronto, is that when we organize effectively, uh, we can make real change on our streets. Toronto history buffs might be familiar with the Christie Pitts riots. It was a time in our history, in the lead-up to the Second World War, where militant xenophobia was spilling out into the streets, culminating in a massive brawl in 1933. But now, Jamie Michaels and collaborator Doug Fedrow have brought this story to life in a graphic novel. I spoke to Michaels in Christie Pitts about Toronto history, the current political climate, and punching Nazis. Uh, so, Jamie, just to, to kick it off, uh, what was the sort of impetus for tackling this uh, this story? I think now as we sit here, we're, we're about at the 
85th anniversary, maybe less a week. Right. So for me, this was an unknown history. I'm not from Toronto. I'm a young Canadian Jew, and I'm no stranger to violence at baseball parks, so this should be my history. Right. And I heard about it in a pub. It came up in conversation. It was casually referenced. And like many people in my vintage, I went, oh, of course, the Christie Pitts riots. Went to the washroom, Wikipedia'd it. <laughs> oh, my goodness, this entire body of knowledge. It really is, I feel, a touchstone of Canadian history that was so unknown. And that was my motivation for living in the 1930s for, you know, three years of my life and creating the book. Right. And with a book like this, do you start with, uh, do you start with the story or do you start with the art? Like, wh- what's your way into it? Right. So the process for me was research-based. Yeah. So I wanted to kind of capture the feeling, the affect of what it would be like growing up as a young immigrant in Toronto with so much global uncertainty. So if you look at the timeline, Hitler has just become the Chancellor of Germany. Mm-hmm. Bennett is the Prime Minister. And immigration is essentially closed off in Canada. Right. We're looking at that time of none is too many. Uh, the infamous quotation that Irving Abella used to title his book on the Jewish Canadian experience at that time. So really, we're looking at very uncertain times. So for me, how do we capture that feeling? So I picked up the newspapers of the day. Mm-hmm. I would read my way through the newspapers. So I'd have the same knowledge as someone living at the time. And then, of course, to supplement that with historical texts, with other firsthand primary documents, with interviews that, of people that had been through the experience of participating in the Christie Pitts riots. Mm-hmm. So I'm really thankful to the Ontario Jewish Archives for kind of facilitating that. But really, the newspapers give you the best feel of the man on the street. Yep. So it started as a research-based process. And then I'm a meticulous nerd. Mm-hmm. So I paneled it out. I scripted it. I got involved in the process, contracted out for an illustrator that could match the feel we wanted for the book. And here we are today. And I think uh, Canada is... is uh we tend to sort of rewrite our own history in in a way that's flattering to us. But what I think a, people, a lot of people don't remember to this day is that, uh, you know, we had boatloads of Jewish people, uh, you know, coming over, seeking asylum, basically, and we turned them away. That we have this idea now, years later, we tell the story, well, we, we got into World War II to right a, a great wrong, uh, you know, to, to save the Jewish people from, from a great evil. But uh, sentiment was not really uh, pro-Jewish uh, at the time. Yeah, and that's absolutely the case. Canada took the fewest amount of refugees of any refugee accepting nation at the time. It had the worst track record. And I feel that history has been covered and really done justice to, but it's been forgotten, I I feel, in the dominant consciousness of the public. Mm -hmm. So my goal in Christy Pitts was to make it story-centered. Let's tell these stories of young Jews who are immigrants to the country, and they're trying to make their way in the world. And that story has many parallels with maybe not the Jewish community the same capacity today, although that still is a truism, but so many immigrants in Toronto, especially in Canada as a whole, that are still facing that xenophobia mm-hmm. and still facing that prejudice that we look back in 33 and went, this would never happen today, but it still is. Right, yeah. And the way you tell that story, uh, the, the, you know, those kind of four primary characters uh, who each kind of represent... Uh, like a school of philosophy in a way. You know, there's, there's a guy, Sammy, who's always ready for a fight. And then on the, the far other end of the spectrum is a guy, Yadel, who, uh, you know, really, he's more of a, well, just a classic pacifist, uh, you know, who truly believes that uh, that sort of Isaac Asimov, like violence is the last resort of the incompetent. Or, uh, and, and then there's everyone in, in between. Uh, so uh, when you were envisioning, like, the, the players in this story, uh, did you intend it to be a sort of uh, philosophical parable in that way, or did it just kind of come naturally? 
the hope is that there's philosophical threads without them being overt character tropes. Mm-hmm. And that's the idea of making the characters a bit real. I'm trying to reconcile, and I still am today, that idea of is violence ever an acceptable reaction to hatred? Right. At what point do you need to fight the war of words versus the war of fists? And I don't think there's a clean answer to that question. Mm-hmm. I think it comes in gradations and at junctures in history. So I'm hoping the characters reflect that in that they're not simple stereotypes of base philosophies, but they reflect the unclean way we try to incorporate philosophy into our daily living. Definitely anyone reading the headline news these days uh, is going to have to reconcile with what they feel about that one way or the other. I mean, this most recent uh, Pride Month uh, in Hamilton first and then in Toronto, we, we had people in literal helmets and, uh, you know, kind of makeshift suits of armor going around harassing LGBTQ people. Uh, so whether whether or not we are comfortable with violence, uh, violence uh, does have a way of uh, making, it, making itself uh, heard and seen and felt. Uh, and I think that's what your characters are wrestling with in, in the Christy Pitts Riots book. Yeah, I feel at the end of the day, we're well-dressed primates, but primates nonetheless. And we have to contest with that on, on a personal and a political level. Right. Uh, another big uh, sort of centerpiece of the book uh, before the, the actual riots happen is, uh, is a major boxing match that happened in... Uh, Yankee Stadium. Yeah. Uh, did, uh, did that come out in your research, or is that just kind of like lore that uh, you were like, oh, this, this is what people would be listening to on the radio at that time? No, I was so interested in this intersection between politics and history, and I discovered this match in the research. Mm-hmm. And what a amazing story. Max Schmeling, Hitler's favorite boxer, the former heavyweight champion of the old world, coming to really what is a Jewish heartland in the new world in such precarious times to test the myth of the Aryan Superman. Right. So we've got Max Baer, who is never really identified as a Jew has, you know, he's not going to synagogue on a regular basis, but he has this ancestry and he says, for this fight, I'm going to wear the star of David on the front of my trunks for the first time. Right. And then from there on, wore it every day until he retired. So everything is political and to think otherwise is for people that are selling something. And, uh, you know, the, the, the story that you tell kind of ends with the riot, but with sort of dark foreboding about, uh, you know, uh, without spoiling too much, just saying like, well, we'll see, we'll see. Like maybe, you know, maybe something good here happened. It's it's difficult to say. Like it's the morning after they're all kind of uh, just trying to come to grips with what just happened in this city. Uh, and, uh, but I wonder if, if you did some reflecting in all that research, I mean, I'm certain you must have, uh, that like what for you was the takeaway of that moment in a sort of burgeoning city's history? In terms of looking back, retroactively as historian we have this germ now canada is deemed a place where hate speech is not tolerated and that's embedded in the law at the time of the christie pitts riots the swastika was being blazingly flaunted throughout the city mm-hmm. um jews were barred from certain professions de facto uh barred from taking or renting property in certain neighborhoods that were restricted quotas in the university for certain professions like law and medicine So if we look back at maybe a genesis of hate speech not being tolerated, it's Mayor Stewart prohibiting the flying of the swastika as a policy, not as a legislation in the city. So we grow from experience 
in a way that's not clean and not a pure celebration. You know, Mayor Stewart was also a prominent member of the Orange Order, and there's a lot of vitriol that has come out of that organization, whatever your thoughts are on it. Right. For listeners, is a deeply Protestant organization that would lead marches through the street, um, often virulently anti-Catholic specifically, but also not, not a fan of other kinds of uh, religious minorities either. Yeah, that's, that's a good way of terming it. So it's, it's not a clean history, but that's how we progress. And if we look back and we think all these battles were cleanly folded in with neat characters, it's impossible to apply them to a live present. Mm-hmm. So that's my historical takeaway is that change comes in an ugly fashion uh, through people on the streets, but it doesn't come without them. And so from your research, uh, you know, listeners are probably familiar, but, you know, don't want to assume, uh, you know, we're talking about thousands of people fighting their way from where we're sitting now, basically, uh, you know, all the way south through Bickford Park and, the, and then into the, the streets, like, home, you know, home line streets. Uh, just how big of an event was this at the time? So the Christie Pitts riots saw 10,000 people brawling in the parks, the ravines, the streets, on the front doors of their own houses, not only physically engaged in combat, but I feel also ideologically determining who has a seat at the table of Canada. And if you look at the histories of these families, these are Jewish families that have fed pogroms in Eastern Europe. This type of street violence wasn't new to them, but the mass reaction was. It was a new generation saying, enough is enough. We belong here. We're standing here. We're not fleeing. We're not looking for the next migration. Mm -hmm. This is where we're taking a stand. And I think that there's a real importance to shifting that mentality that the Christie Pitts riots embodied. Right. And there's also something kind of beautiful in the book uh, where, uh, you know, neighbors make uh, sort of unlikely, sort of tenuous common cause. You you know, you have the the Jewish people and the Italian people, the the people who simply uh, just want to fight against... uh, pure fascism and then people who uh, want to further the cause of Marxism, union, union rights, uh, you know, workers' rights. Uh, and so it, it's a neat little hodgepodge that gets together who maybe weren't necessarily on the same side as it begun, but by the end of it, they were, they were fighting alongside each other. Yeah, it's certainly a politics of strange bedfellows, but I think it's beautiful. There's an anecdote I discovered in my research, and it's... Uh, a recorded commentary of a young Italian who lived through the Christie Pitts riots. And he was going to one of these beaches and they stopped him from entering. They said, hey, no Jews allowed. He said, I'm not Jewish, I'm Italian. The guy said, same thing. Right. (laughs) And, you know, if that's not Gen 1 intersectionality, Mm -hmm. I don't know what is. So, you know, you really see all these movements coalescing to try to rectify an inarticulated broken seam in the fabric of the society right so you knit as best you can with the hands you have right and that takeaway like you mentioned mayor stewart uh, having a policy against uh you know flying the swastika i don't want to get too doom and gloom here but it's kind of a dark period politically i'd say it's safe to say uh and i think we're forgetting uh just the power of those symbols and the reason that we banned them in the first place where now if if you tried to say hey you can't you know you can't fly that swastika here people might say well what about my freedom of speech uh, and uh, I just wonder if, uh, if if we have to kind of remind ourselves of stories like this so that we don't, uh, don't just uh, fall into the same trappings that we did. Uh, a lot of people say it could never happen again, but history does have a way of repeating itself. Yeah, I describe the history of Christy Pitts as depressingly topical. My goal as a writer in the future is to write irrelevant books. That's where I want to be. I don't think we're there right now. So... 
you know, it's a part of my French, these people that say the sentiment, oh, I want to wear the swastika on my shirt as a symbol of free speech. Fuck them. It's, it's a ridiculous sentiment to hold, and based on what we've seen in history, this quasi-race baiting, it seems exclusively leads to violence. And to pretend that correlation doesn't exist is simply a foundation for that violence to erupt upon. All right. Well, Jamie, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Oh, man. Fantastic to have the time to chat. And you can buy Christy Pitt's The Graphic Novel at the Spacing Store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. Finally, our own Matthew Blackett had a chance to catch up with Michael Colville Anderson. He's an urban designer and author, founder of the Copenhagenized Design Company, and host of the TV series The Life Size City, available on TV Ontario. It's, uh, it's great to have you back in the city, Michael. You've been traveling the world recording Life Size City, the, the documentary that in Canada appears on TVO. And you've profiled Canadian cities, you've profiled South American, European cities, Asian, Asian cities. Um, where, do you, where do you see Canadian cities in the kind of global context when, when we start to think about city building and urbanism? I think really a lot of the exciting narrative is elsewhere just to be frank, um, in, in, in the big picture, you know, what gets me excited why I developed the show was that it's so exciting what is happening around the world. You know, I call it the age of urbanism. We're thinking differently about our cities more now than we have in a hundred years, you know, decades of car centric planning disconnect from the citizens. So the thing, something is happening around the world and, and that, that gets me excited. So I think, you know, the, the radical transformations are the ones that capture our imagination the most. The Medellin in Colombia, you know, murder capital of the world to urban is darling. You know, that's, of course, that kind of storytelling. Uh, you know, the blockbusters of urbanism are the ones that, that, we, that we like the most. Um, and, you know, the, that old chestnut Copenhagen or Amsterdam, you know, they're, they're doing good things for years and we can still, you know, milk some good experience out of them. Um, so it's really, uh, when I say the rest of the world, you know, cities around the world are, are doing sort of more exciting things. Um, that's something you don't see very often here in, in, in Canada or North America, you know. Uh, the other example at the moment, Oslo is our darling, you know. They removed 7,000 car parking spots in the last four years, uh, 140 kilometers of bike lanes, car-free in the, in the city center for private car use, whatnot. Like, that's like, that's the stuff that gets you on the front page of the New York Times, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and gets everybody excited. Um, so you see a lot of what I call baby steps, sort of incremental urbanism in, in Canadian cities that, that uh, some good things are happening. But, uh, you know, it's nothing, there's no headlines, as it were. You know what I mean? Uh, not because I need the headlines, because I don't, I, I'm an urban designer. But, I mean, it's still, you know, the, the wow factor is, is missing here. Yeah, I, I, fully, I fully back you on that. I spent, when I first met you, I met you a decade ago. Yeah, um, seriously, man. I, I, <laughs> I discovered you through the, Copen uh, or the, the the cycle chic uh, blog that you were doing yeah. in Copenhagen, then through Copenhagen Eyes, and when I came over there and and and, and visited with you, I, I spent a, I spent about six weeks in in northern Europe and Scandinavia, and Copenhagen was my my base for 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 most of that. I would pop into the city for a couple of days and then go somewhere else for a couple of days, and and kept doing it. And 
it was it was a revelation to me as a, as an urbanist. It, it 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 felt like I went into an urbanist theme park when when I when I got there. Um, and then the more I traveled, the more I saw it in other cities. I saw it, you know, Melmo across the bay. It's to some extent not not nearly as Copenhagenized as uh, as Copenhagen is. Um, but it, it, it did. It really got me excited to see those places. And I went back to Copenhagen in 2016 and got to see a whole bunch of other other unique things that were going on. A lot more city building development as opposed to like uh, the North Harbor and, and some of that some of that kind of stuff. Um, and, it, and it, there was a lot of headline grabbing stuff. The playground on top of the parking garage. You know, that's a brilliant metaphor that's going on. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and we, we're, not, we're, we're not doing that here. But what is it that you see in Canadian cities that you do like, where we're actually heading in that direction, where we're taking those those baby steps? I think um, you have some politics, or rather, some politicians who. You know, the rest of the world could could also benefit from. You have the the, the Projet Montréal in, in Montreal, the people's movement that went into politics and continue to rock the vote and now sit on the whole city, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with Valérie Plante. Uh, you know, you got Nenshi in Calgary who's, uh, you know, he sort of said, we got all these pilot projects for bike lanes, one a year for seven years, let's just do them all at once as a network. And the planning department in Calgary is going, oh my God, thank you, you know. Um, so you, And you get... You know, the mayor, what's his name, Robertson in Vancouver, he's, yeah, you know, yeah. there's, some, there's some good politicians here, and you almost had Kismet uh, <laughs> elect, well, not almost, I don't think she was close, but I mean, you know, that would have been uh, uh, amazing for this city. Um, so that's what I think is interesting, you know, in, um, we, can, we, we have cycles of great, you know, politicians in European cities and whatnot, but, but it's kind of a, I, I, try to, I always try to find patterns and everything, and I kind of see mm-hmm. this pattern, uh, which is interesting. Um, it's like... It's a smaller country. I know it's big, right? And 38 yeah. million people, so it's not tiny. But I mean, it's still, there's not that many big cities. So it's kind of like they all know each other and they sort of, of course, you look down the road at what, you know, Edmonton's doing or what, you, know, you hear what they're doing in Victoria or whatever. So it's a smaller network of, of, of interesting uh, possibilities. So maybe I'm, I'm theorizing now why, why, why this might be happening. So the, some political will is pretty good. Generally, in urbanism, I think Canadian cities um, uh, have the potential to be a lot more interesting. Toronto is a city where a lot of stuff is happening that's crap and it's bullshit. And there's a lot of amazing stuff that's happening. There's this, so we're still getting crappy buildings being built. But then you have things like the Laneway Project that is doing amazing things, at, uh, like at a granular level, changing neighborhoods. Um, and then you have organizations like Walk Toronto um, that are you know advocating on behalf of pedestrians and getting things changed. There's, there's a tons of really amazing things that are happening. Well, dude, actually... When we filmed the life-size city here for season one, yeah. uh, it's TVO, so they said we want an Ontario city because that mm-hmm. makes sense. So we said, right, well, there's Toronto, right? So we we did that, and you know, I'm I live in Denmark, but I grew up in Calgary, so I had only spent maybe 48 hours of my life in Toronto before I came here to shoot. So I, you know, the East-West classic divide, and then we came here. And literally, that episode, I think, when people say, "What's the episode is the do you like the most?" Um, uh, I think I was most surprised about Toronto because I, I knew so, so little about it, which is cool. If I go mm-hmm. to other cities, I've been there before. I have a context. I know the people there. Mm-hmm. Here I knew nothing. And, dude, we were blown away um, by the content we could generate here. And I go around the world and talk about the life-size city and say, this is the city, I think, on the planet that has 
the highest level of citizen engagement. Everybody, like all the urbanists mm -hmm. and whatnot and the students, they're all doing something. They're, they're in the, the not far from the tree picking people's fruit. There's 3,000 volunteers picking fruit, man. Who are they? Uh, the Laneway Project, you know, just regular citizens connecting with them. It's, it's really, that was, to be honest, uh, it was a couple of years ago we filmed here now, but man, that just blew me away. So that's, that's what I took away from Toronto was like, wow, people doing it for themselves. Also, as a reaction to your amalgamation, where they have no contact with politicians, uh, yeah. but still, man, that's that's really cool. So you're right, man. And and, and this really is one of those, like I, I would say, if we were going to talk, like a, a good thing about Toronto is its, uh, its citizen engagement, especially at the city building levels. It it it's often filled with nimbyism, um, but at the heart of it, it's about people caring about the city and their neighborhood and where they live. And so, uh, you know. You, can give them a pass to, to some extent on, on, on some things. Um, you know, we have just massive residents association, uh, uh, groups of residents associations all over the city advocating. Um, and they, and they hold a lot of sway with our city councillors. And so, um, in, in many ways, if, as long as they're not trying to, often what you find is that they're, they're often trying to block things. That's what a resident association is for. It's not so much to accept things, but you're finding this, a new generation, I think, has been coming up over the last 10 or 15 years and has started to make a real imprint on the city from its uh, activist roots and, and um, uh, in its city building uh, activities. I mean, I'm working now. After 10 years with, uh, you know, as the CEO of Copenhagenized Design Company, worked in 100 cities around the world. But I mean, now I'm I've stepped away. I don't, I'm not working there anymore. Let other people take it over. But I mean, I'm really moving into into citizen engagement, tactical urbanism, because man, everybody's hungry and everybody has woken up and realized. Wait, you're telling me I can change my street or that park? You know, now I have kids and you know, um, and people are well traveled and uh, the internet and uh, we see what's happening around the world. Uh, you know. That's what the life-size city hopefully does as well, making people realize that uh, they can take their city back, right, after decades of car-centric planning. Um, so I think it's, it's that's, man, it is the age of urbanism. So, I mean, I think Toronto is really ahead of the curve uh, because of the political situation with uh, a highly centralized, uh, uh, you know, political system, right? So I think yeah. um, that's where, that's what, you know, people can learn from, uh, from Toronto. Maybe not the baby steps, uh, but, I mean, the fact that people are going, yeah, we're hungry. We want this. And it's really, it's across the board. You're in Buenos Aires. You're in Tokyo. People are going, yeah, I'm going to just, I can't wait anymore. I'm just going to go out and do it, right? I'm going to get some neighbors, some friends. We're going to go and do a thing, right? And uh, make our city a little bit better. And it's so much of a pattern. It's so much of a trend. Uh, well, that trends come and go, right? A, like a tendency that it's, I'm super excited about it. And, you know, that's what I'm going to be moving into now because I think that's where, I just want to change stuff. I want to, like, be able to see some of the projects I worked on, you know, we did the entire bicycle strategy for the city of Detroit, right? The entire 7.2 square mile downtown, really visionary. Like they really wanted best practice infrastructure, amazing project, you know, and they're starting slowly to build it. But I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an impatient idealist. I realize I need to, if I had business cards, that would be on it, right? Um, because I just, you know, I want to change stuff now so I can get to do that if I work with citizens in Mexico City or whatever and, and you know, get my hands dirty and transform an intersection and make people go, whoa, it could look like that. I didn't realize that. So I think that's the most exciting part of, you know, this age that we're uh, still moving into is that we are realizing we can change stuff ourselves. So that, that, that gets me excited. So your show that's been on TVO, Life Size City, it's, it's fantastic. There's two Thanks. seasons that are on, online right now. What should people expect from upcoming seasons and, and episodes? Where, where are you going? Season three is pretty cool. We're, uh, we've gone to, um, like, as far afield as Buenos Aires, um, the end of the world, really. Mm -hmm. Largest city in the southern hemisphere. Um, 
and New Orleans. Like that was a you know we wild one. In season two, there's Detroit, right? And Windsor. I mean, you know, we hear about the narrative, you know, the headlines about Detroit, you know, the Phoenix rising and all this hype. And it's kind of cool to to go into a city like that and, you know, ignore like the white downtown in in Detroit and only talk to uh, people of color because that's 92% of the population and hear the real story of Detroit that you you haven't really heard a lot of in in, in, the mainstream media. So Buenos Aires as well, that's so far away. I mean, we only ever hear about their economic crisis. Um, And, uh, and that was really cool to see that the same things are happening there and, and in New Orleans, you know, just really uh, seeing how the people are just raging against the machine there and their battle with tourism, you know, all the tourism money comes in, but the, it never filters down to the people. So it's what we try to do every season is to present a mix of cities. You know, when we were first planning the first season, you know, if we only did life-size cities, you know, we'd just be like circling around Scandinavia for the rest of our lives, you know, and, and it, it's so we really want to have that diversity a mega city tokyo it's I mean, how, how can you find anything there bangkok was the one we're going we're never going to find anything in bangkok but no we fished these people out our research team nominated two years in a row for canadian screen screen awards um they just find these people um who are just doing small projects but are really making an impact uh so you know that inspiration can be translated transferred uh, to wherever we are so um so yeah we're just we're following the people man And that's the show. Thanks, as always, for listening. And a special thanks to Lanrick Bennett, who spoke to us about the Danforth Bike Lane's pop-up pilot at the top of the show. If you like this episode, please tell your local cycling union, your water taxi driver, and the person you trade comics with. A like, share, subscribe, or ratings on iTunes will help us reach new listeners. Something like, I can't fall asleep without it. Five stars. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at track 82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. In the meantime, who wants to ride the Danny? Cheers. Cheers.